Well, good morning, family. I invite you to take your Bibles, if you would, open to the book of Daniel. We're in chapter 3 this morning as we continue looking at, I think, some of the greatest passages. Uh, It's hard to say that any part of the Bible is greater than another, but uh, Daniel is just such a rich, rich book. March 3rd, 1836. I was still pretty young back then. There were about 200 Texas soldiers, actually in that time they were called Texians, uh, Texian soldiers inside the Alamo. They were besieged by Santa Ana's Mexican army outside, numbering about 2,000 soldiers. They had held on at this point for about 12 days, but it was clear that it was a hopeless situation. So inside the Alamo, the story goes that Colonel William Travis is said to have gathered his troops, taken out his saber, and drawn a line across in the sand. He asked that all who were ready to give their lives for freedom's cause to cross the line. The story goes that everyone crossed the line except one man. The folks who crossed the line included Jim Bowie, a guy who was too sick to stand, but he asked that other people carry him across the line. The one man that didn't cross the line that night left the Alamo through a window, they say, and he, well, his story doesn't matter. The next day, The rest of the men died in a valiant effort to stave off the Mexican invasion. Even though the Alamo was lost, their courage became a rallying cry for Texans. The words, remember the Alamo, rang from the lips of the army of Texas that ultimately defeated the Mexican army and won independence for the nation of Texas, as those of us who are from there still know it today. (laughs) Still today, almost 200 years later, for most Texans, the words, remember the Alamo, still stir a little emotion and remind us that there are things that are better to die for than to live without. Today as we come to Daniel chapter 3, we come to one of the most familiar stories of the Bible. But in its familiarity, I hope we don't miss that I think God intended it to be for us as it, I think He intended it for the Israelites, tended to be a rallying cry to encourage you and me to stand courageously for God. Let's relook again at this very familiar story. I hope you've got your Bible out and follow along as I begin in verse 1 of chapter 3 of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plains of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, 
As soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. When you hear that, the first thing you realize is that Daniel loved lists. You also realize he loved repetition. There's a lot of it there. Also, when you get to really looking at this, you realize there's a lot we don't know about this story. We don't know exactly when this story occurs. It obviously happens after the events of chapter 2 where we were last week because that, that has uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, Daniel's three friends, being promoted to places of prominence, and we'll find later in the story here that they're in places of prominence. And so this happens after that, but we don't know when. Many scholars think it happened right afterwards or sometime very soon after chapter 2. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, has a little note that places this 16 years later in King Nebuchadnezzar's 18th year. But none of us knows for sure really when this happened. I tend to lean towards the later date myself. We also don't know where this happened exactly. It says it's on the plain of Dura, but we don't know where that is. We presume it's somewhere very close to Babylon. We also don't even know what the image was. Nebuchadnezzar sets up this great image. The text tells us that it's 90 feet tall, some nine stories tall. It's nine feet wide. But it doesn't tell us what the image is. We tend to presume it may be a man, but a man typically is not a ratio of ten to one. A few people might fit that category. Most of us are like, you know... uh, you know, five to one. <laughs> but normal human proportions is more like four to one. point is, we don't know. It might have been a man. If it was, it was probably on a pedestal. That might make sense. Or it might have not been a man at all. It might have been an obelisk, a monument that's shaped kind of like the Washington Monument. Nebuchadnezzar would have seen those on his exploits down into Egypt. They were common in Egypt. They would be inscribed on the sides with tales of all the king's great accomplishments or, or things honoring some god. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar took that and brought it back. The dimensions would be right. But whatever it is, the Bible doesn't tell us. But it does seem that Daniel is making some connection between this chapter and the one that came before, which was all about a statue, a statue of a man. So it seems to me that it's likely that this was a human image. I also, and I'm speculating here, that maybe Nebuchadnezzar here is in fact responding in some way or other to the vision that we looked at last week of the statue of the man. Whether he's doing this again a year or two afterwards or whether it's 16 years or so afterwards really doesn't matter. Nebuchadnezzar has a good memory, I'm sure, for anything that makes him feel good. And and the statue last week, looking at the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, and on and on how God has blessed him and put him over all all of these kingdoms and all of these things. And I'm sure that all made him feel good. What probably didn't make him feel good, and Nebuchadnezzar was a prideful man, we'll see that more next week. What made him not feel good is the fact that the statue implied that there was all these different kingdoms and these different kingdoms were going to replace his. His head of gold was going to be replaced by the Medo-Persian Empire of silver and by the Greek Empire of bronze and later by the Roman Empire of iron. And and, um, I'm sure that didn't make him feel good. It's going to fall. Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sure, wanted a lasting legacy So I think maybe he's thinking about that and he's thinking about the weakest part of the statue. You remember, what was the weakest part of the statue? The feet. The feet which were iron mixed with clay. And it's there that the the statue crumbled when it was struck by the rock, but the statue crumbled there and fell. And and he may be thinking, 
you know, the key to this is building an empire that is united. And Nebuchadnezzar had brought into his empire all of these Jews who were captives. He had brought in Greeks. He had brought in Assyrians. And he had conquered all these nations. Perhaps the way to build a more enduring empire is to unite this empire. See, I think he heard the message of the statue and missed it. <laughs> As, by the way, don't we all, all often do? We hear God's Word and then we miss the point. Especially an unbeliever whom the Bible says the unbelievers, they find the Word of God foolishness. They find the Word of God elsewhere. It says the Word of God is a mystery to them. And so Nebuchadnezzar could have heard the Word of God from that, that Daniel explained and interpreted to him and still missed the main point. He got the point, you're the head of gold of a statue that crumbles. And I think maybe what's happening here is I've looked at this passage and tried to figure out why does Nebuchadnezzar do what he does? Why does he come here and set up this statue and ask everybody to come and worship? Because as I really look at Nebuchadnezzar, I do not see a religious man. I see a man like many despots, like many dictators, who uses religion as a tool to manipulate people, but he really isn't a religious man himself. He'll say later, what God can deliver you? He doesn't believe in any God who can deliver. But he sets up here a religious thing for a purpose. And what is that purpose? I believe it's to solidify his power. And so what he has done here is figure, how do I unify and bring together this whole empire? I'm going to unite them in a common submission to a common God. Now, that's all my speculation, but you can take that as you wish. But whatever he does, whatever the reason, what he does here is he pulls out all the stops. The image itself was a huge spectacle in its own right. Again, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, but covered with gold. An enormous amount, no matter how it's made, what the structure is, to be overlaid with gold, this is a huge amount of gold. Extremely costly, but not only costly, extremely beautiful. Can you just imagine in the desert sun where it rarely is cloudy and rainy out there in the desert sun with the sunlight beating down on this golden, huge golden image, how it just dazzles the eyes. He planned this elaborate dedication ceremony a large orchestra of international instruments and musicians. Daniel lists again and again and again all the instruments. But the, the point is that these instruments are not just all native Babylonian instruments. They are instruments from all over the world. He's assembled these international musicians, I'm sure the finest musicians ever, to put on a musical pageant. Everyone who was anyone was required to be there. All the governmental bigwigs and governmental littlewigs and thousands of dignitaries and international representatives. It says that there are people of all nations and languages. This was an international event. It was designed to impress. A spectacular display of dazzling sights and sounds and celebrities. This week, if you watched any of the opening ceremonies for the Olympics, I think that might be a good representation of what this event was. This was likely the biggest event, the most glorious activity that most of these people had ever seen or ever would see. And so, if you could get there, you went there. He was designed to bring the nation together and the plan was pretty simple. Have a show that attracts people and that engages them and that inspires them with awe. And then at the right time, at the appropriate times, everyone bows to the image. I think there were probably multiple times that it was an interactive thing to get everybody engaged and involved and bowing and doing this all together. 
For most people in the world, adding another God to their worship is no big deal. But you know the story, and you know the heroes of our story here. You'll know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you know that they were not most people. They knew well the first two commandments that God gave to the Israelites, to the Jews. Exodus chapter 20, You shall have no other gods before Me. The second commandment, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. No other gods, no idolatry. These three men worshipped God and God alone. We learned back in chapter 1 that they were resolved not to defile themselves, not in any way to compromise their, their obedience to God nor their love of God. They understood that the very reason that they as individuals and that they as a nation were in captivity in Babylon is that God was in the process of disciplining the Jewish people His chosen people because of their persistent sin of idolatry. And so these godly young men would not bow. Verse 8, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever! You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And so they brought these men before the king. First of all, these men here are called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's perfectly fine to call them that because the Scripture does here in the story. I got into a habit many years ago of calling them by their other names. If you remember back in chapter 1, these are the names that were given to them by the Babylonians and they honor Babylonian gods. They, as Hebrews, as Israelites, had Hebrew names that honored the God of heaven. Those names were... Shadrach was Hananiah, Meshach was Mishael, and Abednego was Azariah. So I got in the habit years ago of calling them Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Because I have a feeling that those are the names they would prefer to be remembered by. And when we get to heaven one day, and you're going to be in a room with, with these guys, and you will be someday, you get a chance to catch up to them and tell them, nice job, you know. You, you will want to call them Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And who can pronounce Abednego anyway? So, whatever you want to call them, I just thought I'd point that out. Because for the rest of the day, I'll be calling them Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Just know that's who we're talking about. Second thing, it says here, the Chaldeans, some of the Chaldeans, or certain Chaldeans, brought accusations against them. And we go, who are the Chaldeans? Well, Chaldean is another word for a Babylonian. All the, ba- all the folks who lived in Babylon or who were native Babylon- Babylonians were Chaldeans. But there's another way to use the word, and that is this word Chaldean was used in a specific sense for the wise men of Babylon. So that's who this is, the wise men of Babylon. Now, if you remember back to the story of last week, 
these wise men owed their lives to Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael because Nebuchadnezzar had ordered their execution. Actually, I guess that takes us back two weeks ago. Nebuchadnezzar ordered their execution and the only reason they're alive today is because Daniel and these three guys got on their knees and prayed and asked God for the answer to Nebuchadnezzar's dream and God gave it to Daniel and Daniel took it to the king and spared the lives of all these men. So you would think that these men would have some love and respect and gratitude for Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, and Daniel. But not. It says they came with malicious accusations. Why do you suppose that is? Well, it's pretty obvious. Nebuchadnezzar, he, they point out, Nebuchadnezzar, you appointed these foreigners, <laughs> to high positions in the government, which should be rightly held by native-born Chaldeans, by the way. You see, they were jealous. May I say that um, you can truly be good and you can do good to and do good for everyone around you But if you choose to follow Jesus and live for Him, sooner or later, you're going to end up on someone's hit list. I say that not because I just think that is a general trend. I say that because the Scripture says that. The Apostle Peter wrote, he said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, it's the normal thing. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, sooner or later, the fiery trial is going to come. And it's going to come, Peter points out, at the hands of evil people. He says, what do you do? Well, you live such good lives among the pagans that that even though you're doing good, that they're going to one day, no matter how much they accuse you, he says, and they falsely accuse you, that one day they're going to glorify God on the day that He visits because you lived rightly. But they're going to abuse you in the meantime. That's what he says. Jesus said a similar thing. He said, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Which raises the question, if you've never served any, if you've never been persecuted at all, you have to look and ask the question, have I been serving Jesus? Sooner or later, it will happen if you follow Him. So Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael are in the crosshairs here, which raises another question, and that is, where's Daniel? If Daniel is the righteous guy who, of whom the Scripture has nothing bad to say about, against whom God, or about whom God says he's one of the most three righteous guys ever, according to God speaking through Ezekiel, where's Daniel? One of those other things we don't know. Daniel's writing, and apparently he doesn't think we need to know. But I want to know. Maybe he was out of town on business. Maybe it's February and he has the flu. Because I, I, <laughs> I assume they had the flu back then too, in February. We don't know. What we do know is that Daniel always remained faithful to God. So we just assume for some other reason he just wasn't there that day. Back to the story, verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every other kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
these men would not bend. I do think it's to Nebuchadnezzar's credit when you, in verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar was furious. In verse 14, he apparently has calmed down a little bit because he doesn't just take the word of these advisors, their accusations, and immediately order the execution of these three men. Nor does it seem here that when he talks to them initially that he is angry. Matter of fact, he actually sounds rather nice. He goes, is it true? And he offers a second opportunity. I think maybe he's, he's thought, had just a few minutes as they're summoned and they're brought to reflect upon the fact that these guys have been working for him for the last year, two, 16 years. And as we noticed last week, these are men of character. These are rare men. Men who are committed, men who are faithful. It's hard to find such men. And I think his anger is rather tempered now as he's reflected on these men. He's thinking, I don't want to lose good guys. He says, is it true? Let me give you another opportunity. I mean, just maybe in the Hebrew, when I say in the Aramaic, bow down, in Hebrew it means stand up or something, you know. Give you another opportunity, guys. When the music plays, what you got to do is bow. And if you don't bow, you, you burn, okay? So, you know, start the music. Is it true, he asks. You know, having deep convictions is one thing. We talked about that in the first lesson a few weeks ago. Matter of fact, it is vitally important to have deep convictions. But it is a second and another matter altogether to stick firmly with those convictions when they are put to the test. The Apostle Peter boldly followed Jesus for three years. Even the very night Jesus was betrayed, Peter had said to Jesus, I'll die for you. When the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, he backed it up. He pulled out a, a sword and tried to do his best Roman soldier impersonation and failed. <laughs> but he tried. Then a few hours later in the courtyard outside the trial, a little girl says, is it true? And he wilts and fades and falls. Sometimes our best intentions, we fail when we're put to the test. Is it true? We fail. It's difficult to fathom the intensity of the pressure that is here on these men at this moment. It would be like being in Bush Stadium. Right there, second base. The center of the field. There in front of you is the President and the Vice President and all of Congress and the, the cabinet and the, all the state officials, all the county officials, all the city officials, international delegates, celebrities, the entire Cardinals baseball team, all your co-workers, all your classmates, your next door neighbors, your softball team, your friends, everybody's there. The cameras are on. It's being live streamed to everybody else's you know, cell phones. It's not there. All eyes are on you. Is it true? I don't I'd probably have 15 excuses. Well, <laughs> justifications, rationalizations. How can we just look? You know, let's rethink this. You know, they don't bend. Their response, what the response is, it has no excuses. It has no no rebuttals. It is. The one thing about their response, as I read it from a 21st century English point of view, it sounds a little snarky. <laughs> you know, King, we don't need to answer you. 
That's kind of how it reads in the modern English version. But may I say that's not at all what they say. What they say is, King, we have no need to answer you in this matter. That's not a snide comment. It is simply saying this. There is no defense needed because there is no defense. We are guilty as charged. That's what they're saying. We did not bow because we will not bow. That's what they're saying. You ask the question, what God is there who can deliver us out of your hands? Well, our God can. But if He chooses not to, we still won't bow. Powerful words. But marvelous courage. Now, you and I know the rest of the story because you went to Sunday school. You were in children's church. You, you, you know, you've heard the story. But Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael didn't know the end of the story. Their presumption is right here that we will die in the next few minutes. They fully believe that God is capable of rescuing them. And He might. But there is no presumption on their part that God will. They are, they are confident in God's ability. But they do not know what God's plan is. They embraced the words of Job who said, Though He slay me, yet I will trust Him. They understood that God's plans might differ from their preferences, but they left that in God's hands. As far as they knew, they were about to experience a barbecue from the wrong side of the fire. But they understood that the worst thing that Nebuchadnezzar could do was kill them. That's the worst thing he could do. And their ultimate destiny is heaven. As Paul said, to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. You can kill us, but you can't kill us. <laughs> We're going to heaven. Death was defanged in their mind, as my old friend Dave Richter used to say, you can't threaten me with heaven. You can kill me, but all that does is send me to heaven. Where's the threat in that? So they said, here we stand. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, verse 19, filled with fury. And the expression in his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He had been nice for a little bit, but no longer. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics and their hats and their other garments. They were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar was furious. He was incensed. He was burning hot. and So he decided to increase the heat. The... the place that he ordered them into, the furnace was likely a brick kiln. The, the normal construction material of the day was bricks. And bricks were usually fired. They were, they were baked to be heat, to be uh, hardened. And so brick kilns are common in that area. They were big things. So they probably just repurposed a brick kiln to have it for a fiery execution should they need one. I don't think Nebuchadnezzar thought he was going to need one. I don't think that was really expected. These young men have dared to defy his command. They contradicted his theology. They disrupted his grand ceremonies. 
And they introduced conflict into his kind of we are the world moment. <laughs> they're supposed to bring everybody together and here they're messing it up. So he orders the furnace stoked to maximum heat. Verse 22 says the men who took them up. And verse 23 says they fell into. So it appears that they were put into the furnace from the top down. So in furnaces like these, they're taken up to the top and thrown into the, the top. They're, it may have been built into a hill or whatever, but somehow there's access to the top. They're thrown in. It says that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were tied up. They were bound with ropes. And all, it pays attention to saying that they're dressed in all this fancy gear. It was a big festive thing. And they've got on all the official regalia and the, you know, the finest dress of the day. And so they've got the fancy hats and robes and all the stuff that you wouldn't normally wear. And they've got all that. And they're just bound up in the whole thing. So they couldn't walk. So they have to be carried. Carried to be thrown in, the text says. Both which didn't work out so well for the guys that had to do that. Because you see, because the furnace is so hot, the guys who took them up to throw them in died in the process of doing it. Despite the faith and the courage of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they were not spared the furnace. They were thrown in. God does sometimes miraculously deliver people from trial. Sometimes He does not. Sometimes God allows us to go into the trial. Sometimes He delivers us through it. He always delivers us. Sometimes from, sometimes through. This is one very rare case where God delivers them out. He lets them go in. And can you imagine? You're on your way in. You feel the heat all the way up to and you're on the way in and suddenly it gets cool. You fall that way down the furnace and instead of falling to pain, you fall in comfort or something. You don't get hurt on the way down. You don't get hurt by the fire. Again, let's just pick it up in verse 24. These guys would not burn. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come here, come out. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. Little parentheses in my little added text. Good news, the fourth guy didn't come out. Good news for Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> and the satraps, the prefects, the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads were not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of the fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar apparently was seated where he could see into the main doors of the furnace. He saw them fall into the furnace and then was astonished at what all came after that. The three men were unbound little lesson, by the way, not really the point of the text, but I'm making one anyway. Obeying God always ends in liberty. <laughs> People think that's what gets you tied up and it's what looses you. Disobedience, disobeying God, living in sin always ends up in being bound up, <laughs> being caught up, tied up. Jesus said the truth sets you free and He's right. It's not really in the text, but it's biblical. Another thing that he saw is that they were unhurt. Neither the fire nor the fall hurt them. The important little lesson we can learn is the safest place you and I can ever be is in God's will, even when that's in the furnace. Third little thing that he saw is that they were not alone. 
There's a fourth person there. Nebuchadnezzar identifies him as a supernatural being because there's some glory he can tell. There's something glorious about this person. So he's like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar says later it's an angel. He doesn't know who he is. He's not a theologian. Daniel, who is a theologian, doesn't tell us who it is. (laughs) Who is it? Well, we don't know, but I would tend to agree with so many of the theologians who do speculate this is Jesus Christ Himself, the pre-incarnate Christ who is there in the furnace with them. As God had promised the Israelites through the prophet Isaiah, when you walk through the fire, I am with you. When you go through the waters, I will be with you. He is with them. I think that there is a principle here for us to understand. A lesson that God is never more tangibly with us than when we're in the furnace. When we are in the time of suffering, especially as we suffer for His sake, for His name. The Apostle Paul spoke in the book of Philippians about the fellowship of His sufferings. I want to know Christ and the fellowship of His sufferings. I believe that he's saying that the Scripture is indicating that there's a special fellowship, a special connection, a special bond which we have with Christ which only comes through suffering for His sake. I don't think that means that I don't think the Scripture ever calls for us to seek that out. But it is one of the blessings and joys of such time. I've heard that from some of our brothers and sisters in the Philippines who have been in places of suffering and being places where they are where they are being persecuted for their faith. And they say it is in those times that they have precious, sweet communion with Christ. Fourthly in this lesson, let's finish up the text here. Verse twenty eight. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. What an amazing turn this day took. Nebuchadnezzar honors Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah for their faith and courage. He promotes them in the kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar praises God as the Most High God. There is no other God like Him who can rescue. That is marvelous. The story, though, is much bigger than Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And I want to Zoom the lens out just a little bit because the lessons here are bigger than just there were three faithful guys and God honored them. He delivered them and honored them. The first big lesson is this. God is God. God was honored, by the way, is the overarching last point. But in three ways, God is God alone. God is sovereign We have noted that that is one of the main points of this entire book. Man is not in charge. Nebuchadnezzar is not in charge. No earthly power is in charge. No other God. There is no other God. It is God who is God alone. He is sovereign over all things. Nebuchadnezzar had asked, What God is there who can deliver you out of my hand? Nebuchadnezzar thought that he had conquered every other nation and every other God. And I don't think he really thought there were any gods who could help. I think he was an agnostic. He just was drunk on his own power. Nebuchadnezzar set up this elaborate event to either establish worship of himself or to accomplish some other purpose. But instead, Nebuchadnezzar learned that all he did was set the stage for God to demonstrate a most astounding truth and in a most astounding way that God alone 
is God. The truth, that truth was presented in vivid, clear, unmistakable, graphic, high definition, three dimensional, you know, <laughs> displays that nobody could miss. It was plain to Nebuchadnezzar. It was plain to the satraps, the prefects, and all of the governing officials whom he had forced to be there. It was plain to all the international dignitaries who had been drugged there. It was plain to all the musicians. It was plain to all the, all the citizens of Babylon who were there in attendance. It was plain to all the foreigners who were there in attendance. It was plain to all the Jewish captives who were there in attendance. There's only one God. <laughs> and it wasn't the one who brought everybody there to worship Him. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. It's the God of heaven. What a turn of events that day. God alone deserves our worship. There's a second thing I notice here with this, and that is this truth that God was honored in that God is with His people. We've noted that's another big theme that runs all the way through this book. It's here again. Let me, well, you see, this is bigger than Hananiah, Ananiah, and Mishael. It's not just that God was with them in the furnace. But there's a much bigger thing in the picture here. First of all, God is working. He's sovereign and He's working His plans and purposes for His people, the people of Israel, the Jews. Why are the Jews in Babylon? Because they fall into idolatry and they've been persistently doing it over the last thousand years. He's been warning them and warning them and they haven't listened and now they're, they're in punishment. I think this is the later date. I think this is just after the last of all the folks have been brought to Babylon in 586 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar's 18th year, the 19th year by Jewish counting in Second Kings, the end of 2 Kings. I think all of the Jewish captives are there as well to see the display, to hear the message, there is one God. These folks who have had a problem with idolatry and God is punishing them, sending them to Babylon, the, the, you know, the, the, the heartbeat, the hotbed of idolatry. And there He's going to force idolatry out of their systems by just making them sick of it. In the meantime, He has to remind them who's in charge and why you're here. They're getting the same message that the heathens are getting there. God is God. No idol is God. But there's even something bigger. If these people, God's people, the Jews, who have been so faithless and idolatrous, if they're there in Babylon and they turn to God and they honor God as God, what keeps them safe in pagan Babylon? They'll be targets for exactly what Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael have just endured. To be wiped out because they dare to honor only one God and not honor the other gods. Did you notice the big picture that happened here? It's so big, we just skip by it. Here on this day, the king of the world, king of Babylon, issues a decree if anyone says anything against the God of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, the God of the Jews, he'll be ripped limb from limb, their houses burned, turned to rubble. What he just did was give the protection of the law, religious liberty and protection for every God-fearing Jew throughout the entire Babylonian empire. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael are tending to think, man, this is all about me. We got ourselves in this bad situation. Now, they don't say that, but that's what I'd be thinking if I were them. How did I get here? I came here just trying to be faithful, and it's all about me. And what God is doing is getting the stage set to get protection for all of these captives that He's bringing to Babylon or has already brought to Babylon. Now they will be safe when they turn their hearts back to God. Phenomenal. 
One more lesson. It's a message for God's faithful people. Live courageously. Live with courage for God. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, calls us for you and me not to be conformed to this world, Paul says. In verse 2, but in verse 1, he says what we're supposed to do. Don't be conformed to the world. Instead, present yourselves to God as living sacrifices. Live for God. You and I know that every single day we face pressure to cave. We face pressure to bow down. We face temptation to bow down. We face tendencies to bow down, not to God, but to the gods around us. The God of materialism, the God of money, the God of pleasure, the God of pride, the God of greed, the God of self, the God of selfishness. You know, we can fill in your blank with all these gods that are out there. Do we not face the temptation daily to go into idolatry? The Bible calls for us, don't conform to the pagan world around you. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind and serve the Lord and Him only. So will we compromise our convictions? Will we conform our values, our passions, our priorities to the culture? Will we follow what they follow and will we love what they love? Or will we live courageously? for Jesus and with Jesus. Will we look back at this and cry out, remember Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Let's go live courageously for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we will live courageously And if the time ever comes where it's put to the ultimate test that we will have the resolve of these men that it's better to die with Jesus than to live without Him. Father, may we stand for Jesus. Not bow down to the gods of the world. May He be the vision the focus of our heart and our life. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.